Welcome to The Color of Us. I'm incredibly excited to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Jill Falcon Raymaker. Dr. Raymaker is a faculty member at Montana State University specializing in indigenous food systems and land practices. She is also a program director of the, Mon of the Buffalo Nations Food System Initiative at Montana State University and works closely with the nonprofit Montana Indigenous Food Sovereign Initiative. She is a member of the Medewin Society and an inspiring advocate and someone I'm so grateful to have on this podcast. She's also a mother of three and loves to spend time on the land during her free time. Thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to hearing more about your story. Thank you. It's good to be here, Sonia. There's many reasons why I wanted to talk with you today, but starting at the beginning, one of the main reasons I'm so eager to have you on the Color of Us podcast is because I'm interested in your in your history and your ancestral background. Do you think you could be able to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'd like to introduce myself in my language. And I just, um, I say hello, all my relatives. My native name or Anishinaabe name is Flaming Horsewoman. I'm a member of the Bear Clan. I come from Turtle Mountain. That's my Anishinaabe community. And um, I am a member of the Mede Society. Um, and the Mede Society is a spiritual society of the Anishinaabe. We do the work of healing for our people and uh, very special um, lodge that I belong to, Midwayway Wingon, which is in uh, Roseau River, First Nation, Manitoba. But um, that the Anishinaabe community, we, as Anishinaabe people, we're spread out all the way from the East Coast to the Rocky Mountains. And um, part of that is because of our migration story and how we were told to migrate from the East Coast to the place where the wild rice or the food grows on water the area of the Great Lakes. And then through colonization, we were really pulled further west um, to where I grew up along the Rocky Mountain Front. Um, we were pulled west because of the buffalo. We wanted to be with the buffalo who supported us when we needed that support. Thank you so much. Before our podcast began, we talked about the difference between the Anishinaabe people and the Métis people and those linguistic differences in um, terminology and description. Do you think you could share with our listeners what that difference is in those two different communities? Yeah. So the Métis are a people who emerged from several cultures. Um, the Métis emerged from the fur trading culture of the Scottish fur for Scottish, French, Irish, English fur traders um, in the 18th century uh, and, and before and thereafter, but really there was an ethnogenesis that occurred in the 1700s where um, those fur traders married into a lot of our native communities. Um, they were accepted by our native communities and they became um, allied with our tribes. Um, so in that process, uh, a new culture emerged, one that people call Métis. Um, and in Canada, that culture is recognized as a people of its own, the Métis, as um, uh, adjacent to the First Nations of Canada. Here in the United States, the Métis are not officially recognized in the same way. Um, though there are Métis people in our communities um, amongst the Turtle Mountain people, the Rocky Boy Ojibwe Cree Métis, um, the Little Shell Ojibwe Cree Métis here in Montana. Um, and uh, 
that culture, um, the language is Michif, um, which is kind of a, it's a mix of some of our Anishinaabe language, uh, Cree and French. Um, and uh, that their cultural traditions are, they do jigging, which is a kind of dancing and play the fiddle. Um, I had a grandfather who played the fiddle for decades on the Bay Crest show out of North Dakota. Um, and there's lots of my Falcon family that is very involved as music musicians in the Métis tradition. And there's a lot of Métis people around the community where I grew up in Shoto. But the way in which I was taught was that we go back to that culture that was original, which was the Anishinaabe culture. And that's how my aunties taught me. And um, so I identify as Anishinaabe, which is our original in indigenous culture, um, that the Anishinaabe people are known also as the Ojibwa, the Potawatomi, and the Ottawa nations. Thank you. You have a really inspiring personal story of how you connected to your own Anishinaabe heritage. Could you please share your journey and what it's been like to connect and embrace all parts of your cultural and ancestral identity? Yeah, so my grandma Cecilia Falcon, uh, she married uh, a non-Native man. And um, I think it was very difficult for my mom and her siblings, there were 10 of them, to grow up um, in Eastern Montana and Western North Dakota in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and to be very much discriminated against because they, some of them, you know, really looked na very native in, and some don't look as native. Um, and I think that because there was a lot of racism as there is now, there was, um, some security and just passing and not recognizing their indigenous identity. Um, and, and in that way, in lots of our families, because it was an issue of keeping our people safe, um, our children safe, uh, many people did not pass their heritage to their children. So the language wasn't passed. Um, the foodways, for example, um, so many aspects of our, our tradition like our ceremonies and our ceremonies were made illegal in both Canada and the United States for more than a hundred years. Um, so there's parts of our culture that were very difficult to access in that they just skipped generations. But for me, I, I just was very prayerful about it and I sought after it and I was given a dream. And in that dream, I was told that there was someone that I needed to meet. And over a course of years, I, I came to meet that person who was one of my own relatives. And um, I, I was put in touch with an auntie who, who knew our ceremonies and our ways. And um, it was very powerful for me as an adult woman, um, having been raised in the Catholic church, having worked and uh, holding uh, graduate degrees in Catholic theology, um, to find my way finally um, and completely into our spirituality, um, to learn some of our language, to hold um, a position in our lodge where I am able to share in the ceremony and participate is a very powerful thing. Um, and I just have really worked to pick up those ways. I have worked to know our food ways and to um, 
heals some of that cultural identity that had been lost in our family um, so that we can go on and say, we're still here, you know, in our own family as uh, Anishinaabe, Turtle Mountain Anishinaabe people. As someone who's really involved in the Anishinaabe community, what do you see as the modern day challenges that are faced by this community in both the United States and Canada? Well, I think one of the, the biggest things that we struggle with is um, access to land is, is a huge issue. Um, you know, land has been wealth always, and to be able to take care of the land and steward the land in the way that we, we always did, um, I think that's very important. Uh, colonization has really resulted in a tremendous decline in the land, the health of the land and the health of the people. Um, and because of the extractive economy that has come with colonization, um, we are constantly working to battle against forces like uh, oil and gas exploration that, that potentially damages the water. Um, there's uh, an industrialized food system that is not particularly helpful to the health of the indigenous people and an economy that hasn't been particularly helpful um, be because it's extractive. Um, and so we, what we really uh, are challenged with is to come back to our own culture, our own economy. Our economy was one that was reciprocal. Um, and uh, we acknowledge all our relatives in that web of life. And we say, which means all our relations. And I think that um, we, we, we did not see ourselves in a traditional way. We see ourselves as the youngest ones in the web of life. And when we think of ourselves as the youngest ones, we think of ourselves in a more humble way with a lot of gratitude for all the gifts that are given to us that help support us, which is a real shift from the way that the world, the dominant culture sees, um, sees how things work economically, how things work um, and the position of humans within that web of life. And, uh, and so I think that coming home to our own reciprocal economy is, is one of the answers for us. Um, and, and really being able to live in a way where we can support ourselves through food sovereignty, being able to, um, to tend the land in a way that is sustainable as it was in our food system for more than 13,000 years. The Buffalo Nation's food system was the longest sustained food system on North America or Turtle Island. So I, I think a lot about those things and uh, native people are coming back to the land everywhere. Um, and we're finding ourselves there with that first teacher of the land and um, we're learning to live in a way that is honoring of the gift of water and the gift of soil and the gift of all the things that it takes to sustain life. Thank you. You've talked a lot about the modern day struggles to land sovereignty. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, blood quantums and how that impacted indigenous land sovereignty in the previous century and so on. I think blood quantum is a very difficult issue. Um, blood quantum is a 
is a marker that does not make any sense um, as far as keeping track of people and and where, who they belong to, where they belong. Um, blood quantum, if we think about the fact that in my own family, um, there's been intermarriage between Europeans and native people since the 1500s. And if you think about how many generations that is, and we try to do the math, the equation of actually how much blood quantum generation after generation of intermarriage how do we identify how much of that blood is, is Anishinaabe or Cree or Dakota or French or Scottish? And all of that is in my ancestral history. I think really that blood quantum was a termination policy of the federal government that was meant to eliminate, um, to eliminate Native Americans. And so these hypothetical numbers when people were enrolled with the tribes if you had any white heritage, uh, you were just put on the roll as half, whether or not that was reflective or not, because nobody had any uh, way of tracing back and seeing you know, what's actual and how do we ever figure out what is actual? Because how do we know how many generations people have been intermarried? Um, and so it really comes down to that notion of metissage or to be mixed and if we look at our 23andMe, if we look at our Ancestry.com tree and we map back and every, if everybody were to do that, I think we'd realize that we're all more mixed than we care to admit. Um, and that those ideas of like the boxes on the census where we check our, our identity are really a false notion of who we are. And I think if we were to notice how mixed we are all and, and be able to just acknowledge that freely rather than say I'm white or I'm an Anishinaabe, but that I'm like all of these things. To say that I'm all of these things is to recognize that I'm much more like everybody else than I am different from them. And, um, so I think that's one way that we might address some of the racism that we we deal with. It, but being mixed is messy. And we have a notion that we really like boxes and we really like the binary thinking, uh, which doesn't really do us any favors when it comes to getting along with one another. So I think blood quantum is something that we should get rid of. It's a termination policy that we should terminate. And that some of the ideas that Native communities are having now about who belongs, um, we're coming up with new ideas about that, such as you belong if you actually have relationship, blood relationship, not how much, but just blood relationship, and other criteria on top of that, like you can speak the language, you're known in the community, you're part, you're contributing to the community. Um, and that those kind of ideas make a lot more sense to me than what, what the blood quantum idea is. Thank you so much for your insight on that. It's something that we can really apply to modern society, especially with how categorized everything is now, especially in terms of race. Moving on to a slightly different topic. Um, you're really interested and involved in food systems and indigenous agriculture. One of the interesting things that I read about indigenous food systems is this concept of reciprocity and giving before taking. 
How is that practice and how does food connect people to their culture? Excuse me, one of the things that we do is, for example, when we're planting in the garden, um, we stop to recognize that uh, the food that will come from that garden is gift and that it's not just us as humans who are doing the work, but that Mother Earth is doing the work. So um, the wind is doing the work, the water is doing the work, the fire or the heat energy that's coming from the sun is doing the work. And so in recognizing that, <clears throat> we offer what we would offer whenever we're making a request, which is we take our first gift, which is tobacco, not tobacco like tobacco that's purchased in the store, but a tobacco that we make. Um, some people call it kinikinik, and it's a mix of several plants together. And that tobacco, we say it, it's a sacred, it's a sacred plant gift that we put in the ground when we plant that first seed. And so um, it's the same when we go to make a, um, when we go to harvest berries or an animal that we make a tobacco offering and we, we are thankful and we're aware and especially if we're planting, if we're, excuse me, if we're, especially if we are um, harvesting, for example, medicine, if we were to find medicine someplace and we're getting ready to cut those plants or um, harvest, we're going to stop and take our tobacco out and we're gonna pray and we're gonna ask if this is okay if we take this and we're gonna listen and wait and decide, you know, if it's okay. And then, you know, part of it too is, is we're always giving back in other ways. Like um, it's not just when we're asking for something, but for example, if knowledge is given to us, like in the with the students that I work with, um, the idea of our well-being is always tied back to our community. As, as Indigenous people, we're very tied to one another, and we think communally. It's that web of life that, that all my relations kind of view or lens. And when we think that way, then we're thinking about how can we share what we have. So if we're gifted knowledge, then we need to share that back. And um, I always think that when we have to teach something that we've been taught, that's when we really come to know it. And that's part of the, the full circle work of, of knowledge sharing. Um, you're a program director for the Buffalo Nation's Food System Initiative at Montana State University. And you've also developed a partnership with the nonprofit Montana Indigenous Food Sovereign Initiative. What are the goals of these two programs and why is food sovereignty so important for native people? So food sovereignty is really our, our right, our need, our, our strength in being able to feed ourselves and to feed ourselves um, foods that are culturally appropriate and healthy. And in a lot of our communities um, with the poverty that has been um, a byproduct of colonization, um, with some of the isolation from the rest of the economy that we face, a lot of our a lot of our communities are grocery deserts um, and we, we don't have access to healthy foods. We have a tremendous legacy of um, inflammatory disease in our communities that comes from being the very first ones to receive processed foods, the foods that became replacement foods after the killing of 60 million buffalo 
Um, and when our food system was gone, we were quite dependent on commodity foods or annuities that were delivered by the federal government. Um, and those foods were processed, highly processed. And um, so we have the health legacies, the health disparities reflective of that change through colonization. So I run the um, Buffalo Nation's Food System Initiative at MSU at Montana State. And um, it is an, an indigenous-led education and research initiative around indigenous food systems. And my students are doing fantastic work with, um, they're stewarding seeds, very old seeds and propagating those and sharing those out with our native communities. Um, they're coming back to the buffalo. They're, they, they know their relationship with the buffalo. Um, and that work is aligned with the Buffalo Treaty. And the Buffalo Treaty has been signed by about 40 different tribes in North America. Um, and that is how, where our direction comes from, is through that treaty. Um, and the Montana Indigenous Food Sovereignty Initiative is also part of the work we do. They're a nonprofit organization, a very grassroots organization of young adults um, and elder mentors that are dedicated to um, Indigenous food sovereignty. And so we're working for proactive, collaborative food sovereignty because it's really hard to take back a food system one nation at a time. Um, so we do better by working together to build infrastructure and work for policy that reflects a food system that will be healthy for indigenous people. The work that you're doing is so incredibly impactful, especially educating the next generation on indigenous food systems, which at least in my own personal experience is a topic that's really frequently overlooked. As a final question, here at The Color of Us, the mission is to raise awareness, foster connection and conversation, as well as elevate the voices of multiracial and multicultural youth. As we conclude our conversation today, what advice would you give my generation of multicultural youth? I would really invite people to think in messy ways, that it's okay to be um, honest about the mixedness of our backgrounds. Um, and it's also okay to identify with um, things differently than maybe what our parents have identified with. Um, I think that for my own self, if we, if I just turned away from my indigenous heritage and said, I'm not enough and I'm just gonna let it go. Everybody that does that, each time that happens, we have one less native person. We have less diversity in the world and we need that diversity. We need different worldviews ways of seeing the world in different ways, you know? And, and I think in the indigenous way, we th see things very holistically. Um, and that would be a loss to not have that perspective shared. So be yourself, be brave. Um, don't be afraid to, to stand in the messiness and maybe to challenge the system that you were brought up in, even the family system you were brought up in. Thank you so much for sharing that really meaningful advice with our listeners. It was so wonderful getting to talk with you today, and I'm so excited to share this podcast with everyone. Thank you for what you do, Sonia, bringing rich conversation to the world. I appreciate it.